Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shining the Light, the podcast dedicated to sending out the marvelous light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Dane Edmondson. Here with me is my co-host, Brian Wise, lead pastor at Community Baptist Church of Richmond. How are you, Brian? Doing well, Dane. Thank you. Good. During today's episode, uh, we're going to be discussing the structure and canon of the Bible. First, we have one question, and then we'll get into today's topic. So this question actually came from my uh, my wife, Kate, um, and the story behind it was uh, we were on the, uh, the phone the other night, and I uh, happened to sneeze while we were, we were on the phone, and she said, uh, God bless you, and I said, thanks. And, and uh, she mentioned that sometimes she'll be at the hospital or someplace, and she'll sneeze, and she'll be in a room full of people, and no one will say, God bless you. And I said, well, let me bring it up on the show and, and see if there's a, a biblical basis for uh, for saying um, God bless you in the context of sneezes. And so my understanding of the of the practice was that if, if someone was ill back in like the medieval days and someone sneezed, it was a precursor to the plague. It would, you know, people would be scared of the Black Plague, and so they would say God bless you to, to kind of ward away the plague. My wife's understanding was that your heart stops briefly every time you sneeze. Um, now, um, when I when I looked these up, it seems like both of those are kind of myths. They're not true, but uh, in in modern society, we do persist in the custom, and I think that's mainly out of habit and probably common courtesy. But I wanted to ask you, Brian, is is it biblical? Well, uh, I also when I saw this question come in from uh, your wife, and I was talking to uh, our uh, youth pastor about this. He said, "Well, did you know there was a, there's another theory of where this came from?" He said. That he heard that it was uh, the the violence that is in a sneeze is so horrible, and if you've ever struggled with allergies, you know what that's all about. So that when someone would sneeze, there was a belief that you you would this this violent sneeze, your soul would leave your body and then come back in when you inhale, and you might just perhaps inhale an evil spirit is what some believe, which is just an out there uh, myth again. Um, not something that we believe. Well, I, I believe, what, what is an answer to this? It's necessary to deal with superstition. It's necessary to deal with tradition in a biblical manner uh, when addressing topics like this. Some people, you know, they, they have a rabbit's foot, or uh, some people have, uh, you know, just certain things they do, like baseball players, and they go through these certain kind of a superstition um, repetition, and it becomes tradition. Most people probably respond to someone sneezing with, you know, God bless you because they simply want to be kind. And I think the, the Lord definitely approves of kindness. Ephesians chapter 4 in the Bible in the New Testament, verse 32 says in Paul writing, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And so kindness is definitely, um, for a follower of Jesus Christ, that's something that that we have been shown by God, and so we definitely want to show that to others. Paul writes to the, the Roman uh, believers, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Or do you despise the riches of his, of God's goodness, forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So it's, it's not God's wrath and his awesome power that he uses to draw us to salvation and to Christ. He actually has shown us mercy and kindness. So I think it is important that we do show kindness. And a Christian need not get derailed by every trend or novel teaching that distracts from the gospel. Some people believe, you know, hold your breath while you pass a graveyard and kids will hear that and they'll start doing that. And these are really non-issues. 
uh, unless you hold to this superstition over and above Scripture. And then it becomes an issue. You start to put your faith and trust in superstition, then I believe you have taken a left turn, a wrong turn. And these kind of questions, should you celebrate Christmas? And what about the Christmas tree? And is that pagan? And all these kind of things, they can just result in endless hours of arguments and not produce anything uh, spiritually, anything of righteousness, true righteousness, Christ's righteousness. So I think it's helpful to quote, close this question with Paul's instruction to Timothy. And he writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, from such withdraw yourself. So that's a good question, and I think that we can show kindness and not get caught in just endless uh, wranglings over superstitions, but we can show kindness and know that that's not offending the Lord in any way. Thanks, Graham. So uh, moving on to today's topic, what's the most important thing that people should know about the Bible? Well, I think it's of utmost importance for us to state that the Bible is the living Word of God. It's not just a dry, old, you know, history book. I know some of our listeners probably when they think back to their days in, in school, having to learn history and, and just some people connected with it and loved it. And other people, they just, they just couldn't care less about when wars happened or various things of, of that nature of history. But the Word of God, it does contain history, but it is a living book. So it stands alone in its, in its uh, category. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament uh, puts it this way. He says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Word of God, it, it gets beneath the surface. It goes straight to the heart of men. It can unmask us. It can lay us bare and open at the deepest recesses of our hearts and lives. So studying the Bible, and we will do that quite a bit through this podcast, but studying the Word of God is far more than academic or just merely for intellectual purposes, for us to know more and so forth. As, as we engage with the study of the Scriptures, we do so with a great love and a passion for truth. Job in the Old Testament proclaimed his love for God's Word, even in the midst of great suffering. Truly, when you meet someone who goes through times of deep sorrow and suffering, and they offer to those around them the Word of God, Scripture, truth, promises. It truly is remarkable. But this is what Job says in the middle of great suffering and pain. Job 23, verse 12, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That's a powerful statement. 
of Job's love for the Word of God. The psalmist described the Scriptures this way in Psalm 119 and verse 140. Your Word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. The prophet Jeremiah, he expressed his love for God's Word in the following manner. Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. The prophet says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Now, when I was a kid and I, I heard that scripture, I, I was like, what? You know, eat the, eat the Bible? I, I didn't understand fully. But as I have grown older and the more I read and the more I study the Word, the more I'm with believers who have really made it the habit and course of their life to know the Word of God, the more I see in them a deep, deep love for the Word of God that they would skip meals to to partake of the eternal food, the Word of God. And this is what Jesus, the Word, made flesh. This is how He defeated Satan in the wilderness temptation. He quoted Scripture. He quoted from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8.3. And Jesus answered Satan, and, he, and this is what He said in Luke 4 and verse 4. But Jesus answered him saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. What would you say the the layout of the Bible is like? It's not just—I mean, it's not just one continuous book. It has different chapters, like there's Timothy and Deuteronomy and Ephesians and stuff like that. So, can you kind of do an overview of of kind of how the what comprises the Bible? Sure. the The Bible is comprised of two separate literary works, including sixty six individual books. So the Old Testament consists of 39 books written from approximately 1400 uh, BC to about 400 BC. And the New Testament consists of 27 books written between AD 40 and AD 100. The complete Bible was written over over a period of about 1400 years. And God used uh, around 40 different authors and the unique thing, the amazing thing about Scripture is that all of these authors over all of these periods of time were all unified in their message. Their message all points to Jesus Christ as the Redeemer, Messiah. Now, I remember when I was a young person playing a game called Gossip, and whether we're maybe in a youth group or a school group, and we sit in a circle, and someone would introduce into the ear of a person at the at the beginning of the circle uh, some small story, and then that person had to whisper it to the person next to them, and in a matter of you know five minutes, this small story would start and end, and then everyone would listen in to the last person share the story. It, it always ended in a miserable train wreck. It never matched. And you think about how in a room in five minutes telling one simple pointless story and it all got discombobulated and just turned into a mess. That's often how it is. I mean, we can read newspapers and there's typos and you read misprints and all of these things. And that's with editors and they're careful and they really work hard. And, and you know, you can even read a textbook and, and you come across typos and errors. And you, and you think about when the Word of God over all of these centuries and yet it's unified in theme. It's truly a divinely inspired book. Now, the Old Testament 
We said it on our last podcast. We see that Christ is concealed. And in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is revealed. So the Bible is God's Word. And it is a book that is all about Jesus. It was written in three different languages. The Old Testament was written mainly in Hebrew with some Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Greek. And it's an amazing thing that, that Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 how Jesus was born, Jesus, God's Son, God in flesh, was born at the precise moment in history that God appointed that was the best moment in time for our, our Redeemer to come. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, Paul writes, and he says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. God was able to make us his children by sending Jesus at the right moment, the right moment in time. Now, Millard J. Erickson, in his uh, Christian Theology, the second edition, he writes about salvation he says this, he says uh, on page 197, we should note that the basis of salvation was apparently the same in the Old Testament as in the New. Salvation has always been appropriated by faith. This salvation rests on Christ's deliverance of us from the law. Nothing has been changed in that respect. What's he saying? That in the Old Testament, believers look forward to the coming Messiah, to the Redeemer. And they were saved by grace through faith. And they obeyed. If they believed like Abraham, they obeyed. There was a response of obedience and the same as it is for New Testament believers. But we're on this side of the cross and we look back to what God has done. And at the right moment in history, God sent forth his son. The precise time. Well, what was going on in, the, in at the time when Christ was born and when he carried out his ministry and lived and died there in Jerusalem and was put on a cross outside the city and buried and then rose from the dead. Well, there was a common language. It was the Greek language. So just as you travel the world and you, you meet folks in other countries, they want to learn the English language. The English language is the ticket for them to be able to have a livelihood and, and supply and, and, and provide for their families. They want to learn the English language. Well, in the first century, it was the Greek language. And that's the language that the New Testament is written in. And therefore, it was able to be reproduced and replicated and carried out throughout the world. And not only that, but in the first century, and at that right of moment, the fullness of time had come that Paul speaks of, there was widespread peace. There was an ability to travel because Rome was the world-dominating power. And there was a relative amount of peace at that time in human history. So at this right moment in time, Jesus came and we received the word of God and he spoke and through the spirit of God, men wrote down what was written and it was transmitted throughout the then known world and it was at the precise moment that God designed before time even began. So after the Bible was written down, how did it get put together into what the form that we have today? How do, how was it collected? How was it gathered together into the form that we have today? And how do we know that every book in there is is meant to be in there? 
Well, the books of the Bible that were collected and arranged, they were recognized as inspired sacred authority by councils of rabbis for the Old Testament and councils of church leaders based upon careful guidelines. Before the printing press was invented, the Bible was copied by hand. It was copied very accurately in many cases by special scribes who developed intricate methods of counting words and letters to ensure that no errors had been made or introduced to the text. The Bible was the first book ever printed on the printing press with movable type, the Gutenberg Press, 1455. It was the Latin Bible. That's really why the printing press came about, is the desire of men of God who wanted and understood the need of putting the Word of God, the Scriptures, into the hands of all people. Of the thousands of copies made by hand before 1500, more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts from the New Testament alone still exist today. So this makes the Bible more well-preserved than the writings of Plato or Aristotle. And if you ask someone, well, how do you, how do you know Plato lived? Well, I, I read this book. Well, did you meet him? Well, no, but I, I know that he wrote the book because I've seen his writings or Aristotle. And yet so often the same people who are, you know, intellectual, or they, they wonder, well, did Jesus ever live? But as we've just said, the New Testament is the most well-preserved book, even, you know, compared to the writings of Plato or Aristotle. When the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were found, uh, there it was a further confirmation of the re reliability of the handwritten copies of the Old Testament made over the years. The scholars were able to match and realize how the Word of God had been preserved down through the generations. Now uh, we're going to kind of get into some of the uh, some of the books that aren't in the the modern Bible. But can you maybe touch on first the canon of the Bible and how how Scripture came to be, how it was determined what books were part of the the canon of the Bible? All right. I would like to recommend a resource. Uh, it's a it's a good book. R.C. Sproul has a book, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. I don't agree with R.C. Sproul on everything, but it is nevertheless a helpful resource. And in his uh, book, he talks about the canon of Scripture in the seventh chapter. And he says this. Uh, he says we usually think of the Bible as one large book. In reality, it is a small library of 66 individual books. Together, these books comprise what we call the canon of sacred scripture. The term canon is derived from a Greek word that means measuring rod, standard, or norm. Historically, the Bible has been the authoritative rule for faith and practice in the church. And that's just a helpful introduction to this topic of how was the scripture canonized. It's important for us to know the church didn't create the canon. The church recognized, the church acknowledged, and the church received and submitted to the canon of Scripture. J.I. Packer, in his book, God Speaks to Man, he wrote this, The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation, and similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up, end quote. There were three principles uh, used to validate those inspired writings. 
First of all, the writing had to have a recognized prophet or apostle as its author or be directly associated uh, to this prophet or apostle. Secondly, the writing could not contradict nor disagree with previous scripture. Thirdly, the writing had to have general consensus by the church as an inspired book. Now, I've heard a lot in various Sunday school classes and just in my research about the apocryphal books. Can you kind of touch on uh, what those are? Okay. Uh, The apocryphal books are a collection of 15 books that were written after the Old Testament was completed and before the New Testament was begun. These books consist of about four categories. There's historical uh, literature, there's religious fiction, there's wisdom literature, and there's apocalyptic. Now, someone might say, well then, if they were written when God wasn't speaking, which is that 400-year period, that mirrored, so between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 400 years of silence, just as when the children of Israel came to Egypt, when Joseph was second in command with Pharaoh, and then there was 400 years they were in Egypt, and then God sent Moses. Basically 400 years of silence, and then God delivered his people. Well, here, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was, again, 400 years of silence, and then and then in the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist comes on the scene and makes the way ready. He prepares the way for Jesus, the deliverer, the one who is greater than Moses. So someone might say, well, are those books of any value then? Well, they are of value. The apocryphal books are valuable because they give us a background in Jewish history and culture and thought and what it was like to live in that silent period between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New. Uh, These books are included in Catholic Bibles. The Douay Version has these. So there is value. But why aren't they in Scripture, though? Well, they're not included in Protestant Bibles. They're not included in the the Bibles we use. I I use, uh, when I'm reading Scripture, I I, I like the ESV uh, translation, the English Standard Version. I also use, and when I preach, I use the New King James Version. I grew up using the King James Version. But these writings, the apocryphal books, are not included uh, in today's, the 66 books. Why? Well, because... These writings do not claim to be the Word of God. The apocryphal books, they they go around the office of a prophet because that had ceased after the closing of the Old Testament canon. These writings do have a historical value, but they also have historical and theological inconsistencies and errors. These writings were also, they were not used by all or even most of the church fathers. And they're never quoted in the New Testament as authoritative scripture. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, theological inconsistencies. Can you kind of go into why um, some of the apocryphal books contain sub-biblical ideas? Maybe give some examples of those. Sure. I I mentioned a little bit ago that one of the important aspects of a book being received, canonized, being recognized as scripture, was that the writing could not contradict nor disagree with previous scripture. So some of the sub-biblical ideas that are in the apocryphal books, in uh, Syriac 42 and verse 14, we see an inferior view of women. It says, better a man's wickedness than a woman's goodness. 
It is the woman who brings shame and disgrace. Well, that doesn't sync with the rest of Scripture. You see, Jesus, he elevated women throughout his life and throughout his ministry. We see the effectiveness that Jesus had with women. And even after his resurrection, the first witnesses are women who in the first century could not testify in court. Now, that's God's hand at work, just kind of turning the world kind of upside down uh, according to its tradition, and it's giving honor to women. Syriac 3 and verse 3 and verses 14 and 15 demonstrate that a, that a kindness to parents atones for sin. Well, that contradicts that salvation is by grace through faith, and that Christ is the Lamb of God who atones for sin, the only one who, whose blood can wash away our sin. Syriac chapter 3 and verse 30, we see almsgiving atones for sin. Well, we know that the Bible clearly states that man's sins, we, we cannot purchase our pardon because we are dead. What are we going to give to God that he hasn't given to us? We don't have anything to give to him. So if our sin debt is going to be satisfied, God has to provide the payment. And that's what he did in Christ. In 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verses 40 through 45, we see a praying for the dead. Jewish soldiers, they come upon their fallen dead comrades, and they pray for them, and they offer sacrifices for their atonement. So that introduces a sub-biblical, and uh, it's not taught anywhere else in Scripture, and therefore they're not included then today in the Bible with 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Another term that I've uh, heard before is the... Um... Pseudepigrapha. Yeah. That's a word we were all talking about earlier. Right? <laughs> First, can you kind of define what that means for the, the audience and then sure. kind of explain what they are? Well, the, the apocryphal books are the hidden books, right? And then the, the pseudepigrapha, these books are false writings. They're written between 200 BC and 200 AD. There's 63 different works. They're, they're largely legendary and apocalyptic in nature. It shows, and we see in these writings, what, what were the hope? What were the hope of the Jews of Jesus' day for their deliverance? What were they hoping in? What were they looking for? What were they expecting? Examples include one through three, Enoch, chapters two and three in Baruch, the Testament of the twelve patriarchs, and the Testament of Job. What's the nature of these works? Well, they're authentic Jewish traditions that were handed down we only find out through the pseudepigrapha. Now, just to quickly, because we've, we've used the term a couple of times, apocalyptic. Now, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but apocalyptic has a different meaning when we're talking about Scripture than it does in modern times where we think of like volcanoes or earthquakes or any of the disaster movies we see, you know, or the zombie apocalypse or something like that. I think Scripture is a little bit different definition. Well, it, it has to do with like, the end of the world. So uh, how is it all going to turn out? And it gives us an idea of these writings. So therefore, there is value to them. So if you fast forward, you know, 100 years and or even go further than that, 500 years, and uh, someone, you know, uncovers a time capsule and, and they pull it out and there's writings in there and it's the Inquirer and it's the Star and it's, you know, and there's a, you know, Chicago Tribune. Well, they're going to have to sort through 
these writings to say, yeah, it's a writing. Yeah, but what kind of a writing is it? What's the purpose of this writing? And, and what value is it? Are you going to look at this? There was a man that actually gave birth to a baby back in 2000, whatever. You know, well, you have to break that apart and work with that and say, so they, they were, this, this generation was really needy and desperate for entertainment. Mm-hmm. That's what we learned from some of these writings. They just couldn't get enough of celebrities with two heads or whatever. So, um, apocalyptic end of the world. That's the idea of that type of literature. Great. Is there any way to add or alter? Uh, can somebody come along and say, hey, I have a new book I want to add to Scripture? Well, the Bible emphatically says no. And um, the end of the Scripture, Revelation 22, the end of the Word of God, the, the final book, the final chapter, Revelation 22, verses 18 through 19, it states this, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of this of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So it's a very strong final closing of Scripture where God is saying, in a essence, don't mess with my word. My word will stand. Don't add to it. It's completed. Now, as we bring this episode to a close uh, soon, are there any other closing remarks you want to give that support the canon of the Bible being truly close? Well, we see the beginning and the end. So there, there's, there, is, uh, there are other reasons. The beginning and the end. Genesis is the beginning of it all to Revelation, where we see the consummation of it all. So in Genesis, God, through his word, gives us what was what was going on before time began. We weren't there. God was. God is, and God always will be. And so Revelation takes us to eternity future. Eternity past, we come on the scene, Genesis, the word of God, the books, and then we see Revelation takes us to eternity future. We haven't been there yet. But God declares to us, this is what it's going to be like. This is what's going to take place. The silence that took place after Malachi that I mentioned earlier, 400 years. There was 400 years of silence. And then after John delivers revelation to the church, there's another, there's silence. There's no prophets or apostles after the closing of the New Testament. There have not been, there is not, nor will there be any authorized prophets to potentially author more scripture. And then as we read just a little bit ago, the promise of divine judgment, the severe and unparalleled promise of divine judgment to anyone that would tamper with scripture. We also see the pattern of the early church. In the time closest to the apostles, the early church believed that revelation concluded God's inspired writings, the scriptures. So I want to close with a scripture from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And then when we uh, resume and we pick up on our next podcast, we're going to pick up from this point and begin here. But I want to end our time together just looking at the different times when God spoke and what was significant about Jesus coming. Hebrews chapter 1, the first four verses, the writer says this, God, it all begins and ends with God, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, that's the Old Testament, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, it's Jesus, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom 
also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he, Jesus, had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Well, that's our show this week. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Shining the Light. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cbcpodcast and also on Twitter at cbcpodcast also. Or you can email us anytime with your questions and comments. And our email address is podcast at cbcrichmond.com. We also encourage you to like the show on iTunes, share it with your friends and family on Facebook, share it with anyone, uh, whether they're uh, a believer or non-believer, share it with them and encourage them to listen. We want to thank Stuart Scott here at the Unity Baptist Church for the uh, intro and outro music. And we also want to mention that this is a ministry of uh, Unity Baptist Church of Richmond. And I'm going to close this with a prayer today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to share your word with all the people listening to this show and those who haven't yet listened to this show. We thank you for all the blessings that you've given to us, and we thank you for your word, that we have your word, that we can can read it and have such a passion for it and know that you wrote this book and that you left this for us so that we could know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.